No comments about standing up. Hi, my name is Shirley Trimble, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. My home group is Wednesday Night Recovery Al-Anon Family Group. We meet on Wednesday night. <laughs> and uh, if you're ever in town, look us up in the phone book. We're called Al-Anon, A-L, capital A-N-O-N. They'll tell you where we meet. We'd be glad to have you come by. When I was, um, well, first of all, let me say, I have to say that Astoria looks a little different when you've been married 35 years than it does when you're on your honeymoon. <laughs> we, uh, we saw things here that were here then, but we didn't see them. Okay, so, um, and I do want to thank the committee for um, asking me to speak here. It's always for me a privilege and an honor to share the miracle of the Alamo program. And for me, it has been a miracle. When I was 15 years old, I met the addiction of my life. I met my drink, my drug, my addiction. His name was Bob. And he was better than chocolate. And I felt good when I had him around me. And when he wasn't there, I didn't feel so good. And I didn't want to share him with anyone. I wanted him all to myself. And that's how we started our relationship. I fell madly and deeply in love with Bob. And, um, and, I, and I am still madly and deeply in love with Bob today. But we had a few tough times in between. Anyway, um, he, when, when, um, after I'd known Bob for a little while, he introduced me to his mother and father. Now, those of you that are young in the audience, ask your parents who these people are after I tell you their names. I, when he introduced me to his mom and dad, I thought I had just met Ozzie and Harriet Nelson. They were incredible. And they were members of Al-Anon and AA. And they were nothing like in my home. Nothing. And I can remember the first time Bob and I, Bob had asked if we could go do something. And his dad, Ozzie, said, no. And Bob said, Why? And I backed up six feet because I knew someone was going to get hit and I didn't want it to be me. And he didn't hit me. And he explained why. And, you know, I came to find out that AA is a recovery program and that recovering alcoholics don't do it like my Aunt Ginger did, who was our family drunk. So anyway, I fell deeply in love with Bob, but I also have to tell you I fell deeply, deeply in love with his family. And his mom and dad became more my mom and dad than my own biological parents. And they raised me from the time I was 15. And they adored me and they loved me. And they gave me so much to be grateful for because I needed a family. And they were that family. And God provided before I ever knew there was a God. So Bob and I, um, we got married. And, uh, you know, I tell people when I packed those wedding bags, I packed all those defects of character right in that bag with everything else, because Bob didn't give me those defects of character. He let me practice them, and I got a lot of practice being married to an active alcoholic. But he didn't give me, alcoholism didn't give me any defects of character. I had them all before I got there, and I just learned how to hone them to a special skill. So Bob and I did all the things that people, you know, alcoholism doesn't just like one day knock on the door and come in. It just seeps in. It just slowly takes over the house. It just slowly takes over. And I can remember one time, I don't know how long we had been married, and I thought, what has happened? 
What has happened? You know, it wasn't going to be like this. And, uh, and it was like that. And we had a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Bob and I have a good time together, and we have a lot of fun. But somehow the disease just took over our house. It took over our house. And it wasn't quite as much fun as it had been. And when, when we were, had been married for um, seven years, we had a little girl, Laura. He told you about Laura. And we had a little boy 11 and a half months later, just like that, a little boy named Jim. And I was going to win the Best Mom Ever Award. That was what I was going to win. I knew that somewhere, you know, Family Circle or Woman's Day or that have, somebody had a, a, a Best Mom Ever Award. I was sure I was going to win it. Because my mother didn't win that award. And I was going to do it differently. You know, we hear a lot of that from the podium. I wasn't going to do it like my dad did. I wasn't going to do it like my mom did. Well, Al-Anon's had the same stuff. I wasn't going to do it like my mom and dad did. My children were going to know they were loved without a doubt. They were going to know it. And they were going to know they were special. And that's what I promised. As I walked away, you know, when I brought them home from the hospital, both of them, that's the promise I made, those two little babies. And you know what? I would have kept that promise if, one, I'd been taught how to parent, but my parenting skills were taught to be my, my parents. And I'm not putting them down. They just weren't real great at parenting. And the second thing is, I didn't stand a chance with alcoholism in our house. It just wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to win the best parent ever. And, and, I, and I ended up emotionally and verbally abusing those two little kids. And I did it for a lot of years. And that's my story. And that's my pain. And that's what got me to be willing to walk in the doors of Alamon. Anyway, Bob and I had a lot of fighting and a lot of fun. And he told you I didn't have my driver's license until I was older. And um, he just oh, made me so mad. We'd be, we'd be in a discussion. A loud discussion. But a discussion. And he would get in the car and drive off. And it would make me so mad because, you know, I still had a few things to say to him. And he would just drive off. And I thought, damn him. So I decided, I decided when I got my license, I was going to drive off. I think I started the fight. I had the keys in my pocket. He said that word that made me mad. I went out and I got in that car and I was going to lay gravel, you know. But, but I didn't know how. So I kind of just went... Off I went. I left, by God. I left him there. So I went about a block and a half or two blocks, and I pulled over, and I thought, huh, I wonder where he goes. I wonder what he does. So I just turned the car around and went home. I thought, actually, I had the better deal. So that's kind of how we did our lives. Um... Right after I had the kids, I think the kids were two and three years old, we found out my mother had lung cancer and she was dying. And that was one of the darkest times in my life. I was working full time. I had two little babies and I had an alcohol. I had a mother dying of cancer and I had an alcoholic husband. And I went to the doctor because I had a brain tumor, too. And so I went to the doctor to tell him about my brain tumor. And he asked me, he said, "Um, do you have any stress in your life? And I said, no, no, no. I told him I worked full time. I told him I had two little kids and that my mother was dying of cancer. You know what I did not tell him? I did not tell him 
and I wasn't going to tell him that I was married to an alcoholic and that my husband drank too much because he might judge me on that. You know, my mother was dying of one disease called cancer, and I could share that openly. My husband was dying of another disease called alcoholism, and I kept that my secret because that was a secret thing. If I was a good enough wife, somehow I'd keep him sober. So anyway, um, my mom died. And when my mom died, I was not able to, I just couldn't be there for her. I didn't have al yet. I didn't have God. I was, um, I was partaking my own chemicals, and my mother was dying. And I, I remember the night that she went into a coma, and the nurse said, you can come on in if you'd like. And I stood at the door, and I watched her die. And I wanted so badly to go in and hold her, but I didn't know how to do that. So that, we'll come back in a little bit and finish that. Um, And I want to tell you one of the ways God let me make some amends. So what I did, Bob drank and I fantasized. It it was the only way I got through. So um, Bob would get drunk and I would make up things in my head. It was a great life. You know, it worked well for me. And and I knew that Bob was the problem. (laughs) It wasn't me. (laughs) It was Bob. So I knew that I needed to get rid of Bob. And so my fantasy was getting rid of Bob. Do any of you relate to that? (laughs) I see a few hands. Um, So it was a dark and stormy night. There's a knock on the door. It's a policeman, Eugene Cox, in his dark blue uniform. Has a really cute little mustache. Good-looking guy. He op- I opened the door, and I said, oh, it's Bob, isn't it? And he says, yes, I'm sorry. He says, is there anyone I need to call for you? And I said, would you please call Ozzie and Harriet? So he did. And, you know, the policeman looked at me, and he said, you know, you are so brave. And I said, one does what one must. So the next day, the lawyer called. The lawyer called and told me that Bob, in his infinite wisdom, had set aside a large amount of money for me and the kids. I was really pleased. I thought that was sweet of him. So we had a lot of money, and we didn't have Bob. That seemed to be working out pretty well. So we went to the funeral. I had both of my little sweet children, and one at each arm. We're walking down the aisle, and I'm hearing people as we walk down to the front, she is so brave. And I remember thinking, one does what one must. So we, we got him buried, and we had the wake or the party or whatever you want to call it. And, and I was standing at the, uh, across the room from this guy that I'd gone to high school with. And uh, he started slowly walking toward me. Sort of like, you know, in 10, have you ever seen the Bo Derek? And he gets up to me and he says, you know, I never married. I never found anyone as wonderful as you. You know, that was a great fantasy. And all I wanted was to have a normal life. But, you know, that's what I needed to do. Because if I looked at what I was doing, well, I didn't even know how to look at what I was doing. It was Bob. And I had to get rid of Bob. So that's how I spent a lot of my life, just fantasizing. You know, if you wanted... Something you just went for it in the mind and you got it. Then Bob, and so finally I accepted the fact that Bob is just going to drink. It's what Bob does well, and he's going to drink. 
And so I accepted that, and he, and he got sober. He came to me at work one day, and he said, I'm going off to a treatment program, and I'm going to get sober. And I thought, just when I got it figured out, he changed the rules. So, but I knew with Ozzy and Harriet, I knew that a wife joins Al-Anon when her husband joins AA. It's like the Elks and the Elkettes. You know, so, so I joined Al-Anon, and we, and we set off to be this cute recovery couple. That's all I had planned. I didn't have anything else in mind for Al-Anon. So off we go into um, recovery. And um, I'm going to meetings, and I'm hearing the steps read. And I remember one night, I think she looked right at me. The woman read the 12th step. And she said, having had a spiritual waking, and then she looked at me and frowned. She said, as the result of these steps. Now, maybe that isn't quite how she said it, but you know what? I heard it. I heard, oh, (laughs) the steps. (laughs) Maybe I'll try that. That's a good idea. And so I started working the steps. I got a sponsor, and we started working the steps. And step one wasn't that hard for me because, you know, I think when we walk in those doors of Al-Anon, we've taken step one. I think that, you know, we are a bunch of really smart, intelligent people on those Al-Anon meetings. And if we can't figure it out, it's not figureoutable. You know, we have come up with some of the best solutions you could come up with to make someone stop drinking. And you know what? It doesn't work. So we finally walk in that door. We're the, like the last house on the block. And I walked in that door already. So I knew I'd taken the first step. And the second step said that we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. Oh, man, that was a hard one for me. And my sponsor said, do you believe Al-Anon works? And I said, yeah. She says, then don't worry about God. Quit worrying about God. Because I had already turned my back on anything called God. She says, if you believe Al-Anon works, Al-Anon is more powerful than you are. So just relax and let Al-Anon start doing its miracle. Let it start working. And so I started trusting that there was a power named Al-Anon that was greater than me and that could restore me to sanity. What I thought that step said was I would be permanently restored to sanity. I didn't know it meant only when I was sitting in a meeting for the first three years. You know, the minute I'd walk out those doors, I was nuts again. And I wasn't really sure I was insane, except that I recalled um, one night when I was trying to explain to Bob what he was doing to us, and I started flopping around the, on the floor like a dying fish. And I was saying, you know, you've got to take me to the Johnson unit, which is our, our mental ward at, in Eugene. And I remember the look of disgust on his face. And I thought that was all very natural and okay, you know. And my sponsor reminded me to look at that night and think, mm, maybe not too insane, or too sane. So then we came to the third step, and that was the care of God, turning my life and my will. And I've heard people since then say, my thoughts and my actions. And so, you know, I try to turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand him. And the care is an important word in that uh, third step for me. Because, uh, you know, I have to have a caring God. I can't do the God that, that strikes people dead. Uh, I just can't do that God. And so I, I need a caring God. And the God, in my understanding, has a great sense of humor. He has to with me. So, um, you know, he gets, he gets my attention. And he does it with humor and with love. So anyway, then comes the fourth step. And so... Um, 
When I first got to Al-Anon, I think it was the second week I'd been going to Al-Anon, what I forgot to tell you guys was that um, Harriet, Ozzie and Harriet, Harriet had taken me to an Al-Anon meeting when I was 18 years old. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting about 40 years ago, but, or 30 years ago, but I, I didn't need it. <laughs> you see, when I walked in those doors, there were these little mm-hmm. old ladies, like five of them, and, and they were kind of prissy. And I would have drank, too, if I had been married to them. <laughs> yeah, I was like, nah. I don't think so. But they said, keep coming back. So I did. Every three or four years, I'd go to a meeting, especially when Bob was misbehaving. So I'd go to an Allen meeting. But anyway, what, what I did was, I think it was the second or third meeting I'd gone to, I took the um, 12 steps one night. And I did them all, and that was good enough. I had done the 12 steps. So um, now that I'm really honestly working the steps and paying attention to what I'm doing, I decided that I really should do a good fourth step, a really thorough fourth step. And I think I had like 53 typewritten pages spell-checked. You know, they were like, I was covering the bases. And so then comes five where you have to admit it to another human being. Well, I wasn't going to tell it to my sponsor because I liked her. I didn't want her to know that stuff. And I sure as heck wasn't going to tell it to anybody else in Al-Anon because I didn't want him to know. So I had heard about this priest in Eugene that did fifth-step work with alcoholics and, and members of Al-Anon. And so I called Father Joe. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I don't have anything against him. I'm just not one. So I thought that they didn't let them out of those buildings. I knew that I could go, dump my fifth-step, and never see the guy again in my life. So I made my appointment, I went, I shared my fifth step with him, I left, there was this beautiful rainbow over Eugene as I'm walking home, and I thought, well, there, I did that. You know what? He shops at Albertsons, at our Albertsons, right down the street, and he remembered me every time. He'd say, hello, Shirley, how are you? I thought, that was not fair. You know, I didn't know they let him out. So if you're planning on taking your fifth step with a Catholic priest and you don't know anything about him, they let him out. So anyway, I did my fifth step and then came the sixth and seventh. And I was told, and the way I was taught was that you do your sixth and seventh step immediately right afterwards. And you take some quiet time and you do step six and you do step seven. And my sponsor had told me, you know, I said, what if I'm not ready to let go of these defects? Actually, I thought most of my defects of character were quite cute. You know, Bob didn't think they were so cute, but I thought they were pretty cute. And I was attached to a couple of them. They got me through some pretty rough times. And she said, you know, if you're having trouble letting go of your defects of character, pray for the knowledge of the pain that those defects bring you and others. And I thought that was the stupid thing to do, to pray for pain. But I would do it because I had promised I would do what my sponsor said. And so I started praying for the pain for the knowledge of the pain my defects brought me. And if you're having trouble letting go of a certain defect or two, try that. It might work. It sure did for me because I was brought to my knees in pain, realizing the harm and the damage I'd done to my loved ones and myself. So anyway, I did step six and seven, and then I had to make the list. And what I was taught when I was working through the steps is that your eight-step list comes from your fifth step, your fourth and fifth step. And so I started looking at who I had the resentments about and what my defects of character were, and it made it really pretty clear who I needed to do eight-step stuff with. And what, who was on my list was some people that I, I, I didn't know anything to. 
no amends. And some people were not on there that I did owe amends. And so it was really good that my sponsor worked through that list with me. Well, we got a pretty good list, and we started checking them off. And I started doing my ninth step. And two of the people that were top on my list were my son and my daughter. And I started making amends to them. And I started being there for them. And I started to be a loving mother. And my sponsor was this terrific mom. And she taught me how to, how to parent. And I started being a, one of the best moms ever. And I was there for my kids. And I was loving and I was kind. And one night, Laura and I were riding in the car. And, and I said to her, you know, I love you. And she and I were the only two in the car. And she kind of leaned back and looked at me very suspicious. And she said, are you my mom or a lady that looks like my mom? And I thought, well, that's an unusual. Why did you ask that question? She says, because my mom doesn't say I love you first. But you know what? That night I had. And the amends were starting to happen. And I started to make those amends to my kids. My son, um, part of the amends I made to Jim was that I was in school more than Jim was. Um, and that wasn't very much, so I didn't have to be there very darn often, but I was there more than he was. And I went before a lot of judges, and we went before a lot of counselors, and we did a lot of treatment stuff, and I was there for him. And uh, I still am. And I hope that can remain so, because sometimes it's hard to love him. It's certainly hard to love his actions. And so... I'm there for my kids, I'm making amends, I'm doing the ninth step, then comes that stupid tenth step. That's saying, I don't like being wrong. And I sure don't like admitting it. So, uh, you know, my husband, I, who I respect his program greatly, talks about that it's important that he says, I was wrong. I hate that. I don't mind it when he says it. I like that. But, you know, I don't like to admit I'm wrong. And so I started having to admit I was wrong. And then I started doing the step 11. And step 11 says to me that we thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. And so I started praying and meditating. I didn't meditate too much. Mostly I prayed. And I remember that we were, we were in financial difficulty. And we needed, we needed money. I was sure we needed money. And so I decided I would pray for money. And we had a, a rural mailbox across the street from where we lived. And on my way to the rural mailbox, where there usually was only bills, and it was a horrible walk because I knew we were going to walk. So I prayed, and I said, God, let there be money in the mailbox. So I went to the mailbox, and there was money in the mailbox. The problem is, is that it was our own checks that they'd returned to us, and they were going to sue us because it wasn't enough. So I thought, well, okay. I need to ask for it to be more money and not our own money being sent back to us. So I started really working hard on prayer and trying to get it right. I forgot that little part about praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Today I try to do that, but you know what? I still ask for specific prayers, especially for my loved ones. And I always say, after I'm done asking, and your will be done. So then we got to step 12, and you know, as you can tell, I'm carrying the message. And my sponsor reminds me that it's always best to carry the message and not the mess. And so I try to carry a message of Al-Anon and not the mess. And I try to practice these principles in all my affairs. So anyway, I start, you know, I, I work the 12 steps. And like so many of us here, 
uh, promises started to happen for me. Uh, things started happening. Life started getting less scary, less frightening, and less lonely. And I started feeling like there was a little bit of hope in my life. One of the things that I did was um, I used the 12 steps in all areas of my life. And I had this little little chemical addiction to four-way nasal spray. And, um, and, you know, it sounds real innocent. However, well, first of all, in the bottle it says do not use for more than 14 days. I must not have read that because I used it for 14 years. But anyway, um, if you don't use it, you can't breathe. <laughs> so it's kind of a hard one to get off of. And I remember to hear it comes my fantasies again. I used to fantasize about going to Narcotics Anonymous. And so, um, you know, my fantasy was I walked into the church basement. It's always in a church basement. And it's a full meeting. And there's one chair available, and it's clear in the back of the room next to this huge guy. Huge hairy guy, you know? So I sit down next to him, and he's got, like, tattoos all over him and needle marks up and down his arms. And, and he goes, hi, honey. What's your name? My name's Butch. And I say, well, my name is Shirley. And he goes, hi, Shirley. Uh, what's your drug of choice? Now, I knew it was an honest program, but I was going to lie to him and tell him cocaine. Because four-way nasal spray, you know, it's going to, four-way nasal spray? So, but anyway, with the 12 steps and the love of a higher power, I was able to stop using that. Now, one of the things that I always enjoy up here at the podium are when people tell jokes. I don't, however, usually enjoy the jokes that some people tell about Al-Anon. Now, I'll tell you why I don't, because I think Al-Anon is a recovery program. And they use the word Al-Anon when they tell the jokes. And it doesn't sound to me like people that are in recovery. I think they're narc jokes. And a narc is not a real person. And that's what I was when I got here. I was a narc. And you, so I'm going to tell you a couple of narc jokes. Um, do you guys know why, uh, what happens when a narc is drowning? Everyone else's life flashes before her eyes. And, and, and do you know why narcs close their eyes when making love? They don't want to let anyone else see it. They don't want to watch anyone else having fun. Okay, but I do have, I do have one Al-Anon joke for you. Are you ready? How many elements does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They detach and let it screw itself. So anyway, you know, Al-Anon is a recovery program. You are not a member. This is my opinion only. You can argue with me if you want. It won't do you any good because I don't change my mind. Bob will tell you that. But I believe that... To be a member of Al-Anon, I am not just the wife of an active alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. To be a member of Al-Anon, I need to go to meetings, Al-Anon meetings. I need to do that on a regular basis, one right after the other. I am sponsored, and I sponsor when I'm asked. I read the literature, I pray and meditate. I am of service to Al-Anon. When I am asked to serve, and to share my experience, strength, and hope as an Al-Anon speaker, I do it if I can. And that's what a member of Al-Anon is. It's not a woman who's married to a drunk. So that's just my opinion and my opinion only. 
Okay, I told you a joke. I want to tell you about some of my amends. And one of the amends that I got to do was to my mother-in-law, Harriet. And when Harriet died, she was in a coma. And I was able to go and be with her and hold her and talk to her and love her. Not like I was able to do with my mother. I was there. And I was, I even sang to her. I almost brought her out of a coma. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, okay, okay, I won't sing to you. Settle down. <laughs> so anyway, um, but I got to be there. I got to be there. And when, um, when the hospital called us and told us that uh, Frankie had died, her name was Frankie, when they called and said that she had died and that they had her uh, in a room to be viewed for those of us that wanted to, I wanted to. I wanted to go to her and thank her because she gave me Al-Anon. She took me to my very first Al-Anon meeting. And I took my daughter-in-law to her very first Al-Anon meeting a few years ago. And she, like I, have decided she doesn't want it yet. But you know what? She knows where it is, and she knows where to find it, and she knows who to talk to, how to get there. So I went to the hospital, and I thought, what can I give Frankie? What, what gift could ever pay back what she's given me? And so I went to the hospital, and I took, I always carry on me, except tonight I didn't have mine back at the trailer. This is Al-Anon. And it's a little book, and it has in it our opening and our steps, and our traditions, and our closing. And anywhere I have this, I have an Al-Anon meeting in my pocket, in my purse. And I always have one on me. Because when we travel, and Bob alluded to that, I do a lot of service work, and I travel a lot for Al-Anon, and I love that. Whenever we gather in a motel room, and we have this, we have our meeting. And it's become a very important piece of literature to me. And so I took mine, and mine always end up looking really ratty and old and worn out, and they have notes scribbled on them, and they're laminated to keep over them, because I don't like to let go of them until I absolutely have to. And I have a stash of them at home because they stopped making this size. When I heard that, you know, nothing selfish and self-centered about me, I grabbed all the little ones and hid them. So (laughs) they're bigger now. Anyway, so I took that, and we had these dahlias growing out in our backyard, and I took the dahlia, and I took this as Al-Anon, and I went to see Frankie for that last time. And I thanked her for giving me Al-Anon, because this has been a huge gift to me, and it was so important to me. And I laid that book and that dahlia beside her and tucked it in and said thank you. And that was such a, a gift that God gave me to be able to do that with Frankie when I couldn't do it for my own mother. And I find that God provides opportunities for me to do amends. Um, I, when, we, um, when I was in the, the throes of alcoholism, and my act was part of my disease, we had a dog, a little dog, that I lost my temper on one night, and I really hurt her. And I, and I loved that dog. More than anything, I loved that dog. And so God gave us another little dog named Oreo, who we had for 13 years. And Oriole never, I mean, even if I raised my voice at him, he would look at me like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And I wouldn't. And he, you know, he benefited from the amends that I was making. And he, we had to have him put down last year. And now we have a little dog named Winnie the Pooch. And Winnie is just as sweet as she can be, and she gets all of my love, and she adores me. And you know what? Today I don't find it necessary to have to hurt people or animals that I love. And, and that was part of my story when I got here. 
So anyway, um, some of the amends that I got to do were Frankie, and I got to say goodbye to her, and our dog, and our, certainly our children. Um, and, you know, they say in Al-Anon, they say, put yourself on the top of the list. And I didn't know how to do that, and I still don't always know how to do that. But one of the things I did three and a half years ago is I quit smoking. And I did it through the 12 steps of Nicotine Anonymous. And that, you know, that's been such a gift for me because I finally put myself first. And I've been trying to do some of that stuff, trying to take care of myself. Bob told you that our son was in prison. And, um, and that's been such a challenge for me because I never know one minute to the next if he's going to live or die. And uh, I can remember one time he was out of town and he had uh, supposedly been beat up or something. I don't remember what. And he called and he wanted my sympathy and I always gave it to him when he wanted it. And um, I remember he started getting abusive. And so I hung up the phone because my sponsor had taught me to hang up the phone. And I hung up the phone and he called back and, and, and it was collect and I answered it. And I said, yes, I'll accept the charges. And he got abusive and I hung up the phone. And he called back, and I accepted the charges, and he got abusive, and I hung up the phone. And I finally called my sponsor, who lives in Oceanside, California, and I said, Pat, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know what to do. And she said, she says, um, I said, it keeps ringing. I can't stand it. She says, why don't you unplug the phone? And I said, but then I won't know he's calling. She said, exactly. <laughs> You know, but I didn't get it. I didn't understand that. So one one time when I was just sure he was going to die, I called her out and I said, this is it. He's going. He's not going to make it. This disease is going to kill him. I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, why don't you plant some seeds? And she, you know, she, she's a wonderful woman and she just is such an icon for Al-Anon. And I thought she meant, why don't I plant seeds with newcomers? You know, go out and carry the message or something. And I said, you mean like call newcomers? And, you know, I'm like, okay, okay, what, how, you know. She goes, no, like buy some seeds and plant them. I said, you mean like flower seeds? And she says, exactly. And I said, but how will that help Jim? She says, well, probably won't do a thing for Jim, but it'll probably keep your mind occupied. And so I went out and I planted these seeds, and they're columbines, and every year my son and I watch those bloom. This year, because he was in prison, he didn't get to see the columbines. But I got this really nifty little digital camera that takes really, really pretty pictures of flowers. <clears throat> so I was able to take flower pictures of the columbines to send to him. And what the point is, is that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. He's still alive, and, and he's doing better than I've ever known him to do. So, you know, he says it's God's hotel. What <laughs> could be? I know that, you know, they don't let me be in there when I'm not supposed to be. They don't figure he needs a mother. So, you know, they're doing it somehow. Um, when I get out of the way, it works. One of the things my sponsor tells me is, she says, you know, we trudge the road to happy destiny. And she says, sometimes we trudge on our knees. And, you know, she says, and often we're given another spiritual opportunity for growth. <laughs> I call that, oh, no, never mind. <clears throat> So anyway, what I want to do is, um, there's a little thing that Robert Fogram wrote <coughs> called All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And I want, oh, what, I wanted to tell you one other thing about worrying. You know, we in Al-Anon have PhDs in worrying. 
you know, I tell my friends, I go right to dead. You know, I, I don't pass go. I don't collect $200. I go right to dead. So anyway, our son was locked up in this, um, um, like a group home. And for the first time ever in my life that I could remember with him from the time he was probably 11 years old, I was relaxed. He was locked up. He was, I knew where he was. I slept all night. It was so nice. I didn't worry. So the group home called the next day and they said, we need to let you know that Jim ran away yesterday afternoon. I was so mad. I could have been worrying. They didn't tell me till the next day. So I worried. I worried a lot. I worried all night. I didn't sleep. I worried. You know, and the next day they called and they said, by the way, we did pick him up about 7 o'clock yesterday evening. And I thought, well, shit. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that from here. Anyway, I was worrying and I could have been sleeping. So I thought, man, I can't even get worried down right. So anyway, what I wanted to read to you is something that Robert Fulgham wrote. And, and it reminds me so much of Al-Anon because, you know, it is a simple program. Al-Anon is a very simple program. It's not easy, but it's simple. And what he wrote is all I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And most of what I really needed to know and about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not on the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox at nursery school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt someone. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a violent life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day. Some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the plastic cup? The roots go down and the plant goes up, and nobody really knows why, but we all like that. And then remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first word you ever learned? The biggest word of all? Look. Everything you need to know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and politics and sane living. Think of what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon. And then we lay down with our blankets for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and other nations to always put things back where we found them and cleaned up our own messes. And it is still true no matter how old you are, when you go out in the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. Thank you.